However, we're going to review what we did last week, chapters 8 and 10. Now, for those of you who just like, missed it last week, why chapters 8 and 10 is together? Well, chapters 8 and 10 were actually read together traditionally. Uh, traditionally, throughout the, all the church history, 8 and 10 were read together. Because historically, we all believe that, you know, even theologians believe that actually 8 and 10, for some reason, Paul had a mind lapse <laughs> or something, or the person who scribed it split it apart and then added chapter 9, which we're going to address today. So therefore, what is the central point for chapter 8 and 10? It is this. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus is Lord, King, and of course, our God of this entire world, this entire universe. What does that mean, though? So our central point for last week was this. If he is our King, our Lord, our God, he requires our worship, and worship through praise, worship through prayer, worship through song. That's what we do on Sundays. But the other six days, he requires us to worship in loyalty, worship in submission, worship in obedience, and allegiance. Those are tough words, very tough words. And so last week, what did we do? We went through the various temptations of how we could be tempted in not being continually loyal to God. And uh, interesting enough, history repeats itself. There's nothing new under the sun because Paul says there's nothing new, uh, nothing abnormal for humankind. Why did he say that? Because last week, what did he do? He revisited the story of Exodus. He goes, look at, the ex look at the Israelites in Exodus. They were tempted by the same things you are tempted in the 21st century. Same stuff. And what were the stuff? Impatience, envy, right? And doubting God's, doubting God's ability to know the best for us, right? Those were those temptations. Now we're on to chapter 9. Okay, and in chapter 9, I'm going to show you sold him a very expensive wool rug that was made from the fur of a skunk. But... Oh, sweet cheese and crackers. Mr. Big, sir, this is a simple misunderstanding. Mm. Yep. Mm. Ah, this is a simple misunderstanding. Mm. You come here unannounced on the day my daughter is to be married. Well, actually, we were brought here against our will, so... <laughs> Point is, I, I did not know that it was your car, and I certainly did not know about your daughter's wedding. No. I trusted you, Nikki. I welcomed you into my home. We broke bread together. Grandmama made you a cannoli. And how did you repay my generosity? With a rug made from the butt of a skunk. A skunk butt rug. You disrespected me. You disrespected my grandmama, who I buried in that skunk butt rug. 
I told you never to show your face here again, but here you are, snooping around with this... What are you? A performer? What's with the costume? Sir, I am a co- Mime? She is a mime. This mime cannot speak. You can't speak if you're a mime. No, I am a cop. <sighs> and I'm on the Emmett Otterton case, and my evidence puts him in your car. So intimidate me all you want. I'm going to find out what you did to that otter if it's the last thing I do. Mm. And I have only one request. Say hello to Grandmama. I some No, I, 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 I didn't see nothing. I'm not saying nothing. Then you never will. Please. No, no, no. If you're mad at me about the rug, I've got more rugs. Daddy! It's time for our dance. What did we say? No, I sing any one at my wedding. I have to, baby. Daddy has to. I some No, no, no. No, wait, no, no. no. Wait. This bunny? Yeah! Hi! Hi. I love your dress. Oh, thank you. Hmm. Oh. Um, uh... You've done me a great service. I will help you find the otter. I will take your kindness and pay it forward. Now, that's just a spoof. Okay, of the actual Godfather. Now, for those who don't know the movie, I'm going to show you this scene. And it's actually the spoof from this one. And this is the one that I want everyone to watch, okay? That I cannot do. I'll give you anything you ask. We've known each other many years, but this is the first time you ever came to me for counsel or for help. I can't remember the last time that you invited me to your house for a cup of coffee. Even though my wife is godmother to your only child. But let's be frank, you, you never wanted my friendship. And uh, you were afraid to be in my debt. I didn't want to get into trouble. I understand. You found paradise in America. Had a good trade, made a good living. Police protected you and there were courts of law. But you didn't need a friend like me. But uh, now you come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. But you don't ask with respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Instead, you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me to do murder for money. They ask you for justice. That is not justice. Your daughter is still alive. They're going to suffer then. She suffers. How much shall I pay you? What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? If you'd come to me in friendship, then the scum that ruined your daughter would be suffering this very day. 
And if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then he would become my enemies. And then they would fear you. Be my friend? Godfather? Good. Someday, and that day may never come, I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But uh, until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Grazie. Give this to uh, Clemenza. I'm of reliable people, people that aren't going to be carried away. I mean, we're not murderers, in spite of what this undertaker said. These scenes are like, what does the Godfather have to do with chapter nine this morning? Well, this morning we will unpack our central point, and it's this obeying Jesus may disqualify us or lose out on things that we need to survive. Example, career, your job, financial stability, shelter, and yes, even a spouse. Obeying, obeying Jesus may disqualify us or even lose out from things that we need to survive. Why do I say that? How did I get there? Well, let's begin. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. I'll be reading off from the NIV. If Paul says this, now he's addressing again to a letter that was written from the Corinthians to him, okay? So he starts off with this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Paul is still responding to a letter written to him by the Corinthians. We don't know the question yet that the Corinthians are asking just yet. But we do know that the question is in the form of a criticism or a judgment of Paul, right? He says this, judgment on me. Why are you placing judgment on me, he says. Uh, in the, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. So there is something, a question in a form of a judgment by the Corinthians on Paul. They are criticizing Paul about something he's doing that they believe he should not be doing if he is an apostle, i.e. a follower of Jesus who has seen Jesus personally. It seems like their criticisms are targeted at disqualifying him as an apostle because of something that he's doing. So let's move on. What is he doing? We don't know yet. Let's go on to chapter 9, verse 4 to 9. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serve as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it because the oxen that God is concerned? 
wait a minute. You guys notice that this is very rhetorical? It's a rhetorical question here. Paul says that the law, i.e. Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, said that Paul has every right to food and drink, getting married, work for a salary. He goes, do I not have every right? Does a soldier not have a right to get, you know, to, uh, to get paid? Of course, Paul. No soldier is going to volunteer to get speared, right? So of course, Paul, what are you talking about, right? Paul is saying, well, does not a, a vineyard owner have every right to harvest their own crops? Of course, Paul, what are you talking about? Of course the, the vineyard owner should actually harvest the crops. Okay, so for Corinthians, they would say, duh, yeah, Paul, what's your point? Right, like, you should get paid to do what you do, right? However, Paul, there's a slight little undertone in, these, uh, in this passage all of a sudden, right? For some reason, he's getting to something. What is his point? Something in that undertone is exactly what the Corinthians are disqualifying him as an apostle. But for now, this section is actually telling us a little bit of apostles, right? They're telling us a little bit of apostles. Apostles do get paid. Apostles do, get, do have, their, have shelter, receive shelter, and receive pay, and receive food for what they do for a living. So Paul affirms this with all these questions, with these rhetorical questions. He agrees. But then we go and say, if we were the Corinthians, we go and say, so what's up, Paul? Why the rhetorical questions? Well, unfortunately, he continues on with rhetorical questions. Let's move on. Verse 9, uh, chapter 9, 10 to 18. Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And you would say, of course, Paul. Yeah. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Of course, Paul. Yes. But we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Hmm. Highlight that. Okay, if you have your Bibles, highlight that. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who, who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? Yes, Paul, of course you do, you still would say. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Oh, yes, Paul, we know that. Jesus did the same thing. Yes, we understand that. But what is your point, Paul? But I have not used any of these rights. Am I not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me? For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Highlight. If you are able to highlight, highlight. Highlight that. Verse 16. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not, if not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. Verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Who, again, if you were the Corinthians, you would say, what is up, Paul, right? Paul continues his rhetorical questions, and obviously, if you and I were the Corinthians, we would say, oh, man, Paul, you're so long-winded, right? Like, uh, get to the point, man. Of course you should get paid. What's your point? And yes, you're right, those who serve the temple or the altar, i.e. today church, they should get paid for their services too. From, and you know, they should have received some benefit. Even the Lord Jesus himself, we know that, right? By the way, N.T. Wright, if you have been reading his commentary, he would say, he would go further about the temple of what Paul is referring to, right? What is the temple? Christians, 
right? Uh, we Christians are the temple of God. So he would say, well, if you serve Christians, you should get paid from Christians. You follow? So if you and I were the Christians, we would say, of course. Why they come trying, hey, You know, so long-winded. Why are you so long-winded, right? So let's review what Paul has laid out so far then. First, basically he's describing what apostles are. Apostles have seen Jesus personally. Apostles have seen Jesus personally. Okay, so this chapter has nothing to do with me, pastors, <laughs> all right? Has nothing to do with me, pastors. I do get paid, but this chapter should not be the one to talk about my pay, which is really traditionally what it's used for, right? This is about apostles. This chapter has everything to do with Paul's apostleship. Second, apostles evangelize and garner a following since they are people's role models. Remember the role model thing? Third, they are to be supported through food and salary for their efforts and service from those who benefited. Self-explanatory, i.e., they are supposed to be supported by Christians. They are able to get married as well. Peter had a wife. They are able to get married. And four, apostles are preachers of the gospel, and they get paid doing it. And so, what is it that Paul is doing that is causing so much problem of disqualifying him as an apostle? What is it? What does your highlight say? He didn't take a paycheck. That was the biggest problem. He didn't take a paycheck. He didn't want to take a paycheck. What? So now we know, right? But he says, I am not going to take a paycheck from you. Why? Why is Paul not taking a paycheck from them? What does the paycheck in the Corinthian times represent? Okay, what does the paycheck represent in the Corinthian times? What does it, in the Corinthian culture, when somebody pays you, what does that really mean? And that Paul does not want to affirm or nurture. What is something that is similar to, like, say, taking a favor from the God? Uh, I can't do it. Godfather. Favor from the Godfather, right? Like, the, for some reason. Well, let's move on. Verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Key word there, key phrase. Belong to no one. Highlight it. Belong to no one, but a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. Remember back in chapter one? Remember that one? How the Corinthians were really into the whole, yeah, I'm in Team Paul, I'm at Team Jesus, Team Apollos, Team Cephas, remember that? Why? It's because they wanted to be part of a winning team. If they were spiritual, and if they were part of a winning spiritual team, then they themselves in the working world will get ahead. It's like this thing to add to your resume, right? Your spirituality, right? The more spiritual you are, spiritual you are the better you'll be. That's number chapter one. And then remember in chapter three, how concerned they were to build up their resume that they wanted to have winners as their affiliates, like uh, their mentors, remember? And then they, in chapter three, they go, Paul, come on, man, come on. Be the winner that we want you to be. Not this bald, stutterbug old guy. Right? We want you to stand up straight. We want you to have the, we want you to take Toastmasters and be the best speaker. Because you know, uh, historically, Paul has been a stutterbug. He's horrible in public speaking, right? And so the, well, the Corinthians says, no, you gotta fix that. We wanna follow you, Paul, but 
You got to be the winner that we want you to be. All right. And then in, a, in chapter, like in the latest chapters, and especially in chapter five and six, what did they do? We know that they want to be more spiritual. So what did they do? They were willing to risk sexual fidelity. Right. They were willing to risk. They wanted to be so spiritual. What did they even do? The married couples. They withheld sex from each other. They went so far that they wanted to divorce each other for the sake of it, to become very spiritual. And some of the young ones, especially the single people, they want to be married because marriage was kind of their, they believe was their sign of spirituality. If I get married, I'm very spiritual, right? So they wanted to be very, very spiritual. Let's contemporize. Let's say I'm a, I am a parent. What am I talking about? I am a parent. Let's say I really, 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 really want Annabelle, my daughter, to get ahead to get ahead in life, to get ahead in school. What would a normal, I hate to say it, but it's kind of stereotypical. What would a normal uh, middle class, upper class parent would do for their child to get ahead? What would they add stuff on? What would they do? Education, but Angel, you should know this. You hire a tutor. Guess what the Corinthians would say? We'll do the same thing with spirituality they would hire spiritual tutors, all right? They would hire spiritual tutors to tutor them. But what's the problem with tutors, spiritual tutors? Are they available for everyone? No, who do they belong to? The person that pays them. What did Paul say? I belong to no one. All right, let's continue. See, in the world of unpredictability and instability, especially in Paul's career, in, in Paul's state. Like, think about it. You survive based on the good graces of others, right? You go to a foreign land, you preach the gospel, and you hope you can move some hearts, and if one day, like, uh, somebody gives you shelter, provides you, hey, come stay over at my house, great. But many days, you will not. You will end up in downtown Eastside in a sleeping bag, or worse. Okay, that's what Corinthians was, like in the city of Corinth, it was like downtown east side. So you'll be sleeping there. There'll be days when people will give you food, great. But there will be many days when you don't have food, right? You're just scraping by. There are days, and then you know, he, uh, a lot of you know that he's a tent maker. Well, guess what? Same thing in Jesus' time, tent makers line up for work. They're like labor ready, right? The tent makers are lined up, waiting for employment, he would line up early in the morning to, and then if he doesn't get work, he doesn't get working, he doesn't eat. You follow? So it's a struggle. Think about the temptation then when a Corinthian, like a godfather, comes up to you and say, guess what I could offer you? I will pay you. I will shelter you. I will feed you. And your enemies will be my enemies. Right? Think about how many enemies Paul had. Remember? All the Pharisees, all the Jews trying to kill him. The Corinthian, a Corinthian family was willing to say, look, Paul, I could give you protection, shelter, money, and food, daily, sustainability. And I will also kill off your enemies for you so that your work of the gospel can go forth. But, like Don Corleone would say, you belong to me. A debt to owe. You belong to me. All right? What does Don Corleone say? He says like this, he goes, I can't do it. 
Boy, I can't do it with my uh, nasal congestion either. And my Asian accent, I can't even do it. Uh, Bonacera, Bonacera, he says. What have I ever done to make you treat me to so disrespectfully? If you come to me in friendship, now do you remember what he said about friendship in the bit earlier part? He says friendship because you don't want to be in debt. You didn't come to me in friendship because you didn't want me to be, you didn't want to be in debt. He meant that, right? And then so he goes, then this scum that wounded your daughter would be suffering this very day. And if by any chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then they would become my enemies and then they would fear you. The whole idea of the Godfather was nothing about money transactions. There was no money involved. If you ever watched the movie, it was all about favors. I, you, give, you come to me in friendship, we have this friendship then, I'll do you a favor, but I'll call on you later on. The Corinthians are the same. I'll come to you in friendship, I'll bring you in. I'll feed you daily, I'll protect you, I'll even get rid of your enemies. But once somebody questions my spirituality, you better come to my aid and put my, the stamp of approval on me. You better be my cheerleader, Paul. My cheerleader. Listen to that type of offering. Listen to that. What the Godfather's offering, listen to what the Corinthians are telling Paul. Now think about today. Is there something that is offering to us that may compromise our faith for the sake of survival? You know, it's very tempting, isn't it? It's not about, like, it has nothing about pay then. This chapter has nothing to do with pay. It's not about whether or not to pay pastors. It's not about whether or not to pay apostles. It has nothing to do with that, right? Ended up being. No, it's really about how much freedom we desire in Christ versus our fear of uncertainty and death. Agree? It's about how much we value the freedom in Christ versus the value of our fear and sustain a fear of death and unpredictability. However, he says, so therefore Paul says, you know what? He knew that he was going to get paid, but he didn't want to belong to one household. He says, I want to be a slave, a servant of the gospel to everyone and not just one household. He says this in verse 20 to 23. To Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself mean, uh, am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I have made with some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. This is why that verse exists. We always hear it, right? I have become all things to everyone. It's because Paul does not want to be a slave to anyone, to one person, all right? To sum up what Paul is saying, he says this, I don't belong to anyone except Jesus. The gospel is for everyone regardless who they are or where they're from. The gospel is for everyone and needs to be preached to everyone so that we can win as many souls over to Jesus. No one he says, controls me of when or to who I can preach the gospel to. Church, you don't control me either. I can preach to anyone I can, wherever the, the, the Spirit leads. I am not just going to be here on this pulpit preaching to you. Right? So I belong to Jesus only too. They can't take the, me hostage with food, Paul says. You can't take me hostage with food. 
You can't take me hostage with shelter, protection, or money. Nothing can control me or prevent me from preaching the gospel, Paul says. I'll preach the gospel whenever and wherever and to whoever the Spirit leads me. He goes on to say, I freely obey Jesus because I am free from the fear of death. Amen? We are free because we are free from the fear of death. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Let's, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not like run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Today, <laughs> it's a battle to survive, isn't it? Right? It's a battle to survive. Uh, insanely huge mortgages, right? I'm sure all of you agree. High cost of living. Gas prices are going up, oil prices are going up, so that's, that's already there. Education is expensive, food is expensive, rent, everything. It's just so hard and it seems like we're always playing catch up. Even finding a spouse, right? It's kind of hard to find a godly one, especially when we're told to find a godly one. Loyalty, sexual purity and fidelity, that's tough to keep on going. That's hard. So what does the evil one do? What does Satan do? He holds out that card, that ace of card, and say, hey, look, you need this. Are you willing to give up your faith for it? You need it. You really, really need it. You need a spouse, he would say and tell you, so forget about committing yourself to finding a Christian. Because you need a spouse, don't you? You want to look normal. You don't want to lose out. You need this job. You need this job badly. You want to keep it. So why, so shut up. Don't say that you're a Christian. Don't show that you're, you have Christian values. He holds that card. Hey look, today's Sunday. Yeah, you know you had to go to church, but your boss wants you to work overtime and it's time and a half. Go for it, man. You need that because to pay off your mortgage. He holds up that the card again. Oh, guess what? Don't tithe. You need that money, man. You need it to survive. God will forgive you, right? By grace, he will forgive you. He throws out that card. But then, part of that card on the other side, you owe me. You owe me. That's Satan's way. A debt to pay. He gives it, but he says, I now own you. We are not, we have no debt to anyone on this earth except for one, and that's God, Jesus alone. We belong to no one except Jesus alone. Why would we ever then succumb to that temptation, that card? See, Paul says that going against the grain is going to be hard. Going against the grain of this world is going to be hard. Going against the grain, we know what that imagery is, right? Going against the grain of wood. How many of you, and I, like, I personally have, done, like, have experiences, how many of you have experienced lots of slivers when you go against the grain? You know, especially metaphorically in life, when you're going against the grain, trying to stick up for, for Christ, and you get massive slivers and cuts. Well, duh, because you're going against the grain, right? Paul says, yes, 
That's why it feels like a race running against people punching you to continually beating you up. It feels like you're getting beaten up, beaten down, losing out, always miss out on the opportunities because you're obeying Jesus. Paul says, I understand that. I too understand that. It is very tough to stick out for Christ now these days, to be obedient, especially when Satan pulls out the card that says, you need this to survive. Right? He will not use, like, he, he will not use the, the things that are around the globe that we hear today, guns, persecution, things. No, the worst thing that happens today, in, especially in this Western Hemisphere, is to hold out a card and then take you hostage with this, what you need to survive. We don't need those things. Paul says, don't disqualify yourself from the ultimate prize. And what is that? And we have to go into Philippians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Let's turn there if you have your Bibles. This is the prize, the prize of eternal life, the prize of eternal life of living in fullest potential that God has made us to be. Paul says this, that it is worth it. All those slivers, all those cuts, all those beat-ups, all those poundings, all those times when you get laid off because you're a Christian, all those times that you miss out and they'll always say that, well, I cannot marry that person because they're not Christian. All those times of saying that, no, I am going to tithe, and yes, even though it's going to hurt, I'm going to tithe. All those times that you're going to say, no, I'm going to skip that OT because I devote myself to Jesus on that day. It's worth it, Paul says. And this is why, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Notice what he's to say. He says that it is a long race. He hasn't taken hold of it. Paul has not taken hold of it. He's done so much, yet he has not taken hold of it. Noticed? It's a long race. Very long. He says this, yet you have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. He says, forgetting what is behind and straying toward what is ahead. Forget all that necessity stuff, that card, he says. Don't worry about it. Right? Focus on what is ahead. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're, we're right now living out our citizenship, heavenly citizenship, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen? Why are we so worried, Paul says? Do not worry, do not be anxious, but in all things, what? Pray in thanksgiving, right? He says to pursue. He understands it is a race, but that prize is worth it. The prize, the waiting, the enduring, the slotting through, the obedience, the cutting, back, the cutting away, and the, the whole process of allowing the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, purge us, prune us, it hurts like heck, but it's worth it. You guys follow? So, to conclude, as you reflect on your, I ask and I pray that you yourselves, throughout this whole week, look at yourself in the mirror. Pray to God to reveal what you see, what, you, what he wants you to see. What ace, what card has you, have you taken from Satan? What do you owe? Because you know what? He'll take it away. There's no such thing. No debt is too big because Jesus paid it all. That debt is paid.
come in repentance and go back to him. And boy, if I had that image again on this picture of one of the sculptures I saw in Rome, that whole prodigal son returning into the father's arms, it's a big embrace. All the stuff that we've encountered and made disloyal to, he would come, he says, come back to me and I'll embrace you. Because it's worth it. Amen? Let's pray.